Well, my name is Jim Palmer, and I serve as president of the Orange County Rescue Mission. At the age of 14 in Newport Beach, a family became homeless that I knew. The husband, I guess, had committed suicide because the family business had gone bankrupt. And so at the age of 14, I tried to figure out how to help this homeless mother and child. I didn't get any help from my teachers or the principal or you know, the, the mayor's office wouldn't return my call. And so I figured, well, maybe this is something that I'm supposed to do. So I went to the executive director of the Boys and Girls Club down the street and said, how do you help people? How does a nonprofit work? And he sort of laughed and said, well, it's all about fundraising. And so I started to learn fundraising at the age of 14 uh, through the Boys and Girls Club there. I also formed a couple of my own businesses because it seemed like the fundraising was taking too long and I needed to raise money to be able to help people. By the age of 18, uh, I had joined a nonprofit board of a startup called Irvine Temporary Housing in an adjoining town. And their goal was to help homeless families, so I figured it was a perfect fit. Uh, little did I know that by the time I hit 19 and a half, I'd be its executive director. And um, so that was just sort of the beginning of a calling into helping the homeless uh, at a very young age and then has continued through the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So um, one sort of backing out Zoom question, like what we saw on the tour here today is, you know, just seems kind of like a remarkable homeless shelter. Um, is How rare is is the kind of things we saw and heard today. Extremely rare. <laughs> um, for a couple different reasons. Once, when I started, the organization was in debt. So I, I made a deal with God, I basically. And I was in my, you know, like late 20s, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this debt is crazy. I don't know what to do. God, if you, you know, take care of this debt, I'll never borrow another dollar. I'll only use real stories of real people and their real pictures. And little did I know what kind of an impact that would have on things um, because uh, we don't use government funds. Government funds have a lot of red tape, how you can help someone, who you can help, and what it all looks like. And we decided early on a couple things. One is that I wouldn't want to put any homeless person into a room or a facility that I wouldn't be comfortable staying in myself. So I started a practice of always living in the facility before we opened it. And uh, even that continues today. And the last time we did this, we had a whole group of people stay there, which was great. But all that to say, uh, we wanted to make sure there was real quality in it because we believed that if, if Jesus was standing there offering an opportunity to help somebody, he would give them the best and not what was left over. Um, I personally realized, you know, being raised in Orange County, that you have to be careful. If you want to be known as an organization that's welcome throughout the community, you have to be a good neighbor. So we decided instead of being a good neighbor, we'll be a great neighbor. So we build beautiful facilities and we manage them very well. And so that the neighborhoods around us are open to what we do, they're supportive of what we do. And again, we tell them, hey, look, if we don't do a good operation, we'll run out of money, we're privately funded. And then the other was something we sort of stumbled across. 
Um, we had one particular facility, a women and children's facility that we were building. Turns out it was in a historic district. We didn't know that at the time. So we had to basically emulate and build a 1940s craftsman-style mansion. And what we learned from that uh, was really amazing because once we opened it, the women that would come in with their children would just sort of break down and cry as they would come in. After the third time, we're like, what is going on? Well, it turns out they're just so overwhelmed with the beauty and the quality and the feeling of safety that comes with that, that their self-esteem you know, took a boost that sometimes programmatically it would take us a year to get them to that point. And it was instantly happening. And we don't look like a shelter. We look more like a, a private college campus. And that's what we really want to look like because we don't want people to feel they have the label of homelessness on them just because of their brokenness. In a sense, we all have our own brokennesses. Unfortunately, we don't all get labels put on us, but the homeless do. So we remove that label and call them students. And everything we do has the context of uh, like a college campus and an approach like that. Yeah, we, we heard um, that the students do about them being uh, treated as if they're in a, a, a year of college, freshman, sophomores, et cetera. And yeah, you and you're right. They come in as a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. If you stay all the way through the senior year, it's usually a, a good two-year program. It's sort of like getting an AA in life. Um, we have people that transition out and graduate out earlier than that. Um, but the big graduation is the one that everybody loves where everyone's in, you know, dressed up and um, we have a, you know, graduation speaker come and, and all those fun things that go along with graduating from a, like a community college. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, what do you know about homeless shelters or peer institutions around the country? Are they growing or declining in, in terms of number of institutions well, or nonprofits and number of people using those? We know from our experience that when we screen homeless individuals and families that come to us, 87% have either an addiction issue or a mental health issue or both co-occurring. So you are talking about a population that has a lot of brokenness. So anything you do to enable the continued use of addiction is absolutely going in the wrong direction. So you'll notice on all of our campus, sobriety is something that is an absolute for us. And we go to the extent of breathalyzing people. We have uh, drug dogs that come through and things like that. And you know, for the most part, the students on our campuses all support that because they don't want to go back to that lifestyle. And if someone's going to try to sneak something in, they're pretty good about you know, turning that person in because they don't want the temptation themselves. So a lot of it is sort of culture building. What do you, you know, what, what you say 87% of people come here have with addiction and mental health issues. Mm -hmm. um, what's like the recidivism rate when they graduate the program in terms of being homeless again? Or, so those that uh, graduate two years after graduation, 85% are still self-sufficient. And for us, that means we stay away from all of the government programs too. So we don't encourage them to sign up for food stamps or rent reductions and things like that. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're saying most of these people, even if they're dealing with bipolar disorder or whatever, um, they're 80, 87% are able to... 85, yeah. 85% yeah. are able to have a, a sustainable life. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And yeah, like bipolarism is interesting. You know, it takes anywhere from 18 to 24 months to balance out the system with medications and things like that. And then, of course, with all the other support and training that's going along with that, we even provide uh, an alumni program. So once they've graduated, they can plug in with their community that they went through the program with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and could you, I mean, in a, in a culture, some people say we're in a post-Christian culture or whatnot, um, or that, that the Christian nature of these kind of institutions is offensive to some people. I'm just curious your vantage point. Is that, in your 20-some years here, has that become more uh, polarizing or problematic, or is it... The misconceptions are, are basically the biggest challenges. People believe, since it's a faith-based program, that only Christians can come to it. People that come into our programs don't have any faith, and if they did, they've gotten rid of it. It hasn't worked for them. Um, so that, that's one of the misconceptions that's out there. Um, since we are not a government program and we're not the only program in town, we don't really have an issue of people coming to us and saying, you know, I'm anti this, I'm anti that. They probably would take advantage of a, a secular or non-faith-based program if that was their issue. So when you back on the topic of replicating this idea, yeah, uh, have you seen anybody take it forward, or do you? We've seen people, people take elements of it, like the concept of it being a college, and you know, we hand out a navigation guide to people so they know exactly what steps I need to take to become a sophomore, and then what happens when I'm a sophomore. We disclose through the navigation guide all of that information. So we'll have some that'll say, hey, can I borrow that? I like this part of the program, I like that. But we haven't seen anybody you know, from the grassroots that have really taken it from the beginning and really replicated it the same way. We heard when you guys tried to, when you moved to this location where we are right now, um, uh, you had some hurdles related to like the chapel. Oh yeah. The city here didn't want to call it a chapel. Could you summarize that for listeners? Yeah, so, um, we were using land from a former military base, and we had built in a chapel into the buildings that we were going to build uh, because it's a core part of our program. And uh, the city locally decided to get a grant from HUD, and they were all excited to get this million-dollar-plus grant from HUD. And they said, you know, we're, we're adding this to your project. And we weren't excited at all because we were privately funded. But at a certain point, we had to have the dialogue with them. Well, interestingly enough, HUD looked at the plans and said, okay, you can't call it a chapel. And uh, we said, well, gosh, there's chapels on military bases. They're like, yeah, but that doesn't matter. You, you could change it. If you call it a multi-purpose room, we'll look the other way. And I didn't feel comfortable with that at all. So I said, no. Um, HUD got upset. And the city got upset, and it impacted our construction for a while. They sort of pulled our permits. Uh, but we lived through it, and uh, one of my attorneys ended up in the attorney general's office in Washington, D.C. on a Thursday morning when he had his normal prayer time and invited a friend of mine, one of my attorneys, to like sit in on that before their appointment. And during that time, they shared prayer requests, and one of them was for the situation I was dealing with with HUD. 
in that room was a fellow named David Quo, who worked for the President of the United States in the White House, and said, can I go share that information with my boss? And before we knew it, the President of the United States was writing um, an executive order to level the playing field for faith-based organizations. Our particular example became the, the foundation, sort of the key to the creation of that. And once he wrote that, all of a sudden the federal agencies backed off in the city and we were able to build our chapel and move on with life. And we, we've heard that your relationship got better with the city after, you know, in subsequent years? It did, it did. And I actually ended up running for city council at one point and won. And so I think that that helped a little bit too. But yeah, we're, we're very well respected by the city and we play a big part in helping the city uh, when they're jumping through their own hoops and dealing with the homeless issue. Because in California, almost every city is impacted by the homeless. The, you know, the number of homeless has doubled in the last five years because of these strange laws that have been implemented. Hmm. Are there any other sort of policy or political issues or concerns that you have on a either local or state level? Well, there's a particular federal lawsuit in our county and uh, we have 34 cities in Orange County, so it's a little tricky. You don't even know sometimes when you're moving from one city to the next. But this federal lawsuit uh, had been brought up because a very large encampment with thousands of homeless uh, gathered on the side of a riverbed, and it turned out to be a very horrible situation for people. Um, but through their representation, they went through a federal lawsuit and started suing each of the cities. And basically they said, Cities cannot enforce laws that deal with the homeless unless first they offer them a place to stay. And each city should have a shelter or beds that are available that they can offer them before the police can cite them. And so some cities, like the city of Tustin, actually moved forward and did that. And, but there's a lot of cities that don't. And so there's this real confusion of, well, whose homeless person is that? And where did they come from? And, so it is still a very fractured system, unfortunately. So not taking on loans and not taking on governmental funding is a very unconventional way to run this sort of thing. So what are the biggest pros and cons of doing it that way? Well, I mean, the pros are easy for me. Um, you can't get ahead of God. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of mentality. If you build it, they will come. And we sort of look at it as... If there's a need, that's when we should build it because the support will be there. So I think we have much better buy-off in the community and investment because they're actually funding it versus a government entity just writing a check. The other is um, when we all went through the last financial crisis back in 06 and 07, we talked to a lot of the other shelters and they were all you know, really having tough financial times. And what was interesting was, as I was talking to them and they were asking, well, hey, is your income up or down and this and that? I'd ask them, what's your mortgage? You know, what are you guys having to pay on a monthly basis? And, and two out of three times, that's exactly the amount of money they were missing. You know, if their mortgage was a half a million dollars a month, that's where they were, they were low on by a half a million dollars a month. And so I think for us, it's always meant good stewardship. But then our donors, too, look at it as if they're going to give us money, it's urgent and it's going to go straight to the need. It's not going to go to paying off um, a mortgage for something that was already built.
And then what are some hinders that might come from that? Things take longer. You know, there were times during this construction project, and of course, you know, we're sitting on about seven acres. So this facility is worth about $40 million now because acreage in this area is worth about $4 million an acre. And uh, there were times that we didn't have as much cash as we wanted to keep the construction going. So we would have to pause and actually do fundraisers or reach out to people and say, we need another million dollars to get us to the next step. So the speediency can be a challenge. And then how did you pay off all the debt that you inherited when you took on this position? Well, it was $90,000, but I was like 27 years old, so it seemed to me like a million dollars. Uh, but God just provided it. You know, through fundraising, direct mail, it started to come in. And then, of course, we just never borrowed another dollar. Uh, we've also acquired other nonprofits. There's a, a neat program called Laurel House for Teen Girls. Their organization ran into a situation where they had to take out a $100,000 credit line. And they used it over a number of years with the idea that they would use it during the short time of the year and then pay it off during the better time of the year. But unfortunately, it didn't work. They got to the point they maxed it out and then realized that they couldn't go on any longer and then we acquired them. So I've seen how debt does hurt nonprofits um, in many cases. And um, so I'm just a, a huge advocate of, of not having it. And the few times we've come close to looking at that We've always been steered away, either by a donor saying, you know what, I'll write you a check. Like during the 06 and 07 period, we were all like wondering what's going to happen in the future with the financial crisis. And I started thinking that I needed as a leader to think forward and say, maybe we should be looking at getting like a credit line for $250,000. Not that we would spend it, but that we would have it. Because when you need it, it's hard to get sometimes. So I talked to a couple of board members. They said, hey, let's run it by a couple donors. The first donor I, I spoke to about it at a lunch, he said, come back to my office. And he wrote a check for a quarter of a million dollars. He said, here's your money. Don't borrow any money. And uh, so we've always been led back, you know, to, to not borrowing at all. And if, just out of curiosity, have you seen other, I mean, in America, still Christianity is the largest uh, major religion in terms of adherence, but um, have you seen either in America or in other countries, other faiths, doing something innovative with homeless or with shelters? Or? Well, they're, they're certainly out there. For instance, we, we partner with Jewish Family Services, so it, it's extremely rare that someone comes to us that says, I'm a Muslim, or I'm Jewish, or I'm whatever it might be. But if it did, um, our partnership with them is that we would refer that Jewish individual or family straight over to them first, and if they couldn't provide services, then, then we could, because they are focusing on their faith and their faith group, where we're open to anybody and everything that comes in our front door. So it's a little different. But no, I haven't seen any facilities or programs that are similar under any other faith necessarily. I mean, Jewish culture has kibbutz and things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're really necessarily set up to deal with addiction or, or mental health or anything like that, but yeah. other cultures do have other ways they approach this. 
these kind of institutions, there's in around America, I think there's unsung heroes. Like in my town in New Jersey, there's uh, 40,000 people right outside of New York City. And when the crisis hit last year, you know, my church, people are trying to figure, what should we do to help? And everybody knows this one, St. Luke's Episcopal, uh-huh. that's, you know, I don't know, how, they don't probably have that many people out of who attend the church. Maybe they do, I don't know. But they're known in our community for their kitchen, Tony's Kitchen. And it just, oh, okay. it's, everybody knows it's that, they're the outreach. Right standing performer and we're going to support them but we do uh, have a lot of those mm -hmm. um and they all are segmented to just someone's doing clothing over here really well someone's doing meals and food over here someone else might be doing transportation vouchers the challenge for the homeless is they're bouncing between all of those things Mm -hmm. and you know, when we looked at needing to create an environment for success, ultimately it meant we had to create the most, most comprehensive facility in the country for homeless families, which is the Village of Hope concept, to where all of their services and needs are done here. So in many cases, we'll have people that'll come volunteer just on the food service side because that's where their hearts are. If we weren't here, they would be running a small little kitchen, you know, feeding people. We have the same thing with people doing outreach. Those that want to be out on the street doing ministry will check out our chili vans or our mobile legal clinic and go out and provide services to the homeless on the street. We sort of become a a one-stop shop to coordinate those efforts, but most importantly, it's a one-stop shop for a homeless person or family who wants to change their life. They don't have to bounce between different agencies and red tape, you know, there's just they just come here and go through our admission process and they're good to go. And you know, initially I started suspecting that women children would be a big number, but everyone else denies it. And anytime you talk about homeless, everyone talks about what they see on Skid Row, which is traditionally homeless men and some homeless single women. But as you'll see here, our far majority is homeless women and children. You don't see them on the street a lot because they're protecting their children. In many cases, they're in fear that children will be taken away. But they're there. They're living in cars. They're living in the parks and things like that. So because we sort of specialized in having all the necessary services for a family, we have sort of become that destination locally for homeless women and children and homeless men and children because there aren't any other shelters that will take a homeless man with his kids. One thing we realized is a lot of the homeless we're dealing with had legal issues or credit issues that were significant. So we started figuring out how do we address that. So we reached out to a local law school, Trinity Law School, and said, hey, would you guys ever consider helping our students here with their legal problems? And they said, oh, that would be wonderful. We just don't have any space. And I said, hey, I have space. I'll give you space, you can set up a legal clinic here on campus. So they did many years ago. And that started to work really well. And then a number of years back, uh, I was out to lunch with the dean of the school. We were talking about the success. And and he laughed and, and he said, yeah, if you could only solve my next problem. And I said, what's that? He goes, oh, my students, they all want to go practice law on the streets. And there's a couple of TV shows, I guess, where that happens. And he's like, they all want to do this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could build you a mobile law office. He's like, really? I'm like, oh, yeah, in fact, I have, like, uh, one of those vans. You know, they have at airports that hold, like, 20 people and move you between stops. I have one. We could just recreate a legal office in it. So we did. And so their uh, 
professor, attorney, and students would go out on the street, and they still do that. Once a week, I think on Thursdays, they go out to where the homeless are and help them with their legal issues on the street. At the same time, we have a clinic here on site for the students that live here. You, I've also heard a lot about the background checks and things that go into this yeah. place, but I imagine that a lot of the homeless people might not have access to their social security cards and numbers and It becomes tricky. It, more and more they seem to because of smartphones and um, having mm. access to smartphones and things like that, that they're able to hold on to some of that. Most of them know their social security number, so that gives us a good start. Um, but yeah, what we do is when they come in, we run a, a DOJ, Department of Justice, FBI background check. It shows all their legal issues that are going on. And in some cases, if you know murder shows up or assault to a woman or a child, we're not the best fit for them because we have women and children on site. So we'll tell them that. But the background is just so they know what their record looks like because in the near future, we're hoping to get them employed again. So they need to know what's out there. Same thing with their financial uh, report is being able to look at their credit report and in many cases, they're not even aware of what it says on their credit report. Then we do a physical health evaluation and a mental health evaluation. We give them all the results and then coach them through how to sort of process that so they can come up with a vision and we can for like an independent treatment program to help them become successful and back on their feet once again. So it is a lot of information. It's, it's unique to us. Nobody else does all of that. But we think it's really important uh, for them to have all that information to be able to deal with those things. Just thinking of, like, say, a mom with a couple of kids comes here, right, and um, is here two years. How, like, what's the what's the picture or the archetype, you know, for the how how does she go back and be on her own with those kids after this? Yeah. So with moms and kids, it's very unique. It, it can sometimes happen as quick as half a year or a year because maybe they have outside family that they can reconnect with. Other moms come in and they've never had a job outside the house and they have, let's say, four kids. And so they might be with us for four years because their track is going to take a lot more work to not only get them employed, but get them into a career path, get them promoted to where they're making enough money. So we own some affordable housing ourselves. And so those cases will typically do like two years here and then maybe another two years at a, a, another campus that we have that's set up specifically for the moms and kids once they're employed and they're trying to develop their careers and things like that. So it is trickier. And especially with the cost of living in Orange County and, and housing costs being so high, it makes it really difficult. Just means they have to spend more time focused on that. We're almost at time for our normal podcast length or pastime a little bit, and so I, and I want to respect your time. But I did want to ask one last question, which is when you look back on your when you started as a teenager, you know, what what's your thoughts now, and what what is and, and then your thoughts for the future. Well, I certainly would have had no idea where I was headed. Um, you know, part of that is I had a sight issue that wasn't diagnosed till I was like 27, so it was very hard to, to comprehend and read a lot, and so college wasn't really on the table. But today I look back and realize God had his hand on the entire path, and that was 
was allowed to happen so that I could stake on that path. Um, you know, I, I think it was interesting. I think I was about 40 years old, and one day it hit me that this is like my career. <laughs> because it's not something that you necessarily go to school for, you get raised up in, you get trained into. You find yourself rescuing people and then trying to find the most effective way to do it with the best long-term results. And I feel I continue to, to learn more things each year in and out. Um, even though I've been here 29 years, it seems like some of the challenges uh, continue to change and we got to stay on top of those so we can continue to see great success in people's lives. Wonderful. Well, thanks for taking time to talk with us today, Jim. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to do it. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag. Thank you.